Welcome, fellow traveler. You are now listening to the Tent Theology Podcast. Each week, we have a tent talk where we pursue the renewing of the Christian social and political imagination. I've been getting a lot of emails and requests from people asking about the identity politics issue, which is essentially the aspect that we see in, I guess you'd call it the more lefty side of things, where one reader described it as woke fundamentalism, where if you don't say exactly the right thing about a certain topic, then you are ripped apart by the crowd or you are cancelled. And we're seeing it. For example, as I speak, you see J.K. Rowling has defended a certain form of her feminist philosophy, which leads her to not affirm certain transgender identities. And she's being attacked now. And then I guess you see it on the other side, right, on the more right side of the spectrum. I guess we could call it patriotic partisanship, where again, if you don't say the right things, if you don't press the right buttons, you are torn apart by the crowd, by your home crowd. Now, I I think these are all really important questions, and it's not that I don't have uh, something to say to them, but I've been trying to figure out how to respond to these emails and questions, and I realized that I think what I want to do is, rather than be led by your questions, I'm going to spend the time expanding on some of these tools and concepts that I think are found in the New Testament and in early Christian thought. I'm going to spend that time drawing out the building blocks of a Christian political imagination. And then after that, perhaps we can go back in and look at these specific questions and see how some of those building blocks might relate to the, today's events. Certainly there's a lot of interlocking wheels And I found that when I'm trying to answer questions on Facebook or even here, that to try and begin to speak to one specific issue always also includes the need to talk about some deep background and conceptual and historical things as well, which have contributed to us even getting to this point. The other thing I would say is I'm resisting the temptation of relevance, capital R. We live in a culture which is so resolutely relevant all the time, that we are always trying to apply the little nuggets that we've learned immediately to an immediate situation. And we judge a teaching or a book or a sermon or or a podcast or a concept based on whether it's speaking directly to whatever it is that's exciting us at that time. And I think we're enthralled to relevance And so one of the things I love about Christianity is it's gloriously irrelevant. It's gloriously bigger and better and weirder than any one little agenda that can be put onto it at any one time. And those agendas are important, but they rise and fall with importance. But there are some things that actually stay with us throughout time and aren't being tossed and turned on the waves. And so I want to look at those things right now. And I think there is relevance, and we can do it, but here's some space and time that we can give to doing some deeper work. I'm going to be looking at some of the concepts in the New Testament, in the early Christian political imagination, which hopefully will start to change the way that we approach any of our modern-day issues, which I guess you could sum up as tribalistic or nationalistic or partisan thinking. So the left-wing woke fundamentalist that I mentioned and the right-wing patriotic fundamentalist that I mentioned, they both end up 
being enthralled to identity politics. They both end up being led by that impulse, a deeply human impulse to gather only with people who look like you and sound like you as much as possible and to expel the foreigner from your midst. And whatever we call that, sometimes we might call it tribalism or nationalism or partisanship. I don't know what we call it, but it, that's what I mean. The human tendency to gather with only people who look like you and sound like you as much as possible and to expel the foreigner from your midst. That impulse is one which I think is attacked quite deeply by the early Christian political imagination. And because this is such a deeply ingrained human impulse, and because it is so fundamentally attacked by a Christ-like way, you will be pissed off, and you will piss off people around you. This seems inevitable, and why it's inevitable is going to be the subject of today's episode. In Ephesians 3, Paul writes, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. And then he goes on to talk about how this mystery, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, is now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. And then Paul doesn't keep you in suspense. He's not trying to conduct a secret society in which the mysteries are made known only to the inner circle. He goes right ahead in verse 6 and tells you what the mystery is. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Then in verse 8, Paul says, I am the least of all the saints, but grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. The mystery is that Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers in the promise of Christ Jesus. And the church is to preach this mystery, the manifold wisdom of God, to the rulers and authorities of the heavenly places. Please just note how the mystery of the ages is about racism. How one member of an ethnically privileged and prejudiced group is being asked to involve and include other ethnic races and groups. And that the mystery hidden for the ages is that Jews and Gentiles partake in the life of Christ. And then notice how this is the church's job, the ecclesia. And the word ecclesia doesn't mean religious organization. It means a group set aside for a common purpose. And the group set aside for a common purpose, its job is to witness this mystery to the rulers and authorities who elsewhere are described as powers and principalities. If you aren't witnessing to the powers, you aren't the church. So now let's look at powers and principalities 
rulers and authorities. This is a concept that is quite prevalent throughout the New Testament. It shows up in all sorts of places. Charismatics will be intimately familiar with Ephesians 6, a few chapters later, where our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Spiritual warfare. Yeah. And sure, Paul is talking about demons in Ephesians 6, and he's talking about forces of evil. But how many people then also realize that in Romans 13, when the same author, Paul, says, I would like everyone to be subject to the ruling authorities, he uses the same words. He uses the same words, powers, principalities, rulers, and authorities, for demons in Ephesians 6, that he uses for bureaucracy and government in Romans 13. Likewise, if you turn to Romans 8, at the end of Romans 8, you get, Know in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And in this list of Romans 8, 37, 38 and 39, we have powers and principalities mentioned in the same breath as angels, as demons, as death, life, gravity, height and depth, time, things present, things to come, and anything else in all creation. Power and principality language, there's a a word salad, or a family of words that gets used in the New Testament, which our English translations will variously describe as powers, or principalities, or rulers, or authorities, or thrones. And there's a lot of words in this word salad, but they all eventually amount to something like faceless powers which influence our lives. And in the New Testament imagination, there are lots of faceless powers which influence our lives. And sometimes they are demons, sometimes they are angels, sometimes it's death, or life, or time, or gravity. But you have to notice how often it's bureaucracy, government, leadership structures, inherited traditions, common sense morality, and religious practices. These two are described as powers and principalities in the New Testament imagination. In fact, more often than not, power and principality language is applied to human institutions and human collective constructs more than it's applied to demons or angels. And this isn't some uh, simplistic demythologizing practice here. We're not trying to say that all demonic powers are actually just political. This is not what we're trying to say. What we're trying to say is that in the New Testament world, or imagination, they had the ability to describe events that we now have lost. They had the ability to describe a reality which we all experience every day, but we moderns have lost the ability to talk about it. And this is the language that invisible things are real, that sometimes we can participate in the creation of these invisible things, which then take on a life of their own. And the life can sometimes be angelic, and it can sometimes be demonic. 
It can be human. It can be inhuman. The story of the powers and principalities in the New Testament is the story of something that is a creature. That means it has been created. And it's been created for a purpose. So all powers and principalities had a beginning. And they have a purpose. But then the story of powers and principalities in the New Testament is that time and time again, these principalities start to act as if they had no creation and they start to break their purpose or burst their bounds. They start to act like little gods and gods demand sacrifices. Gods require humans to commit their lives to them. These powers and principalities have grown nameless and faceless. And so the Christian response to them, the struggle against the rulers and authorities, time and again is in fact to shine a light on them. What has become nameless, to give it a name. What has become faceless, to give it a face. What has burst its bounds, to put it back in its box. The powers and principalities always end up at Jesus' feet. Have a look at the story where the disciples are picking grain on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees are really upset and they tell Jesus he's supposed to get his disciples in line. And Jesus looks at the Pharisees and he says, Don't you know that Sabbath was made for humans, not humans for Sabbath? And he's not here telling them that the Sabbath is evil and must be destroyed. He's saying the Sabbath has a purpose and a place. And I'm going to put it back in its place. And its place was to serve humans. And the Sabbath here is a principality. It's a human religious construct, a a shared collective vision of habit and practice, which has a purpose. It's not intrinsically evil. But what happens is it becomes the thing to which humans sacrifice themselves. It becomes bigger than it should. And in fact, this is what happens all the time in the New Testament, where the powers and principalities are witnessed to. They're spoken to, they're looked at head on, and they're told whose purpose they're serving and why they're there. The first two chapters of Colossians are a very good example of this, seeing the early Christian imagination of the powers at work in a explicitly political and human social construct type way. In Colossians 1, 15, Paul writes, Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. There's that language again. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church, the ecclesia. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Again, the image here of all things, visible and invisible, which is a way of describing all of creation, because all that exists includes invisible things, like demons and angels and money and love and patriotism and racism and family connections. These things are not visible, but they are real. And likewise, all the visible things we see in creation, the trees, the mountains, the rivers, the buildings, those two are also held together in him, the creator of all things, who is before all things. And the story of the powers and principalities is that they're always put 
at Jesus's feet. They're put back in a place under his authority. And then at the end of chapter one, Paul talks about the mystery that was given to him again. And he uses power and principality language to talk about the mystery that he's proclaiming. And then if you look chapter two, verse six onwards, therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition. That's verse 8. Now, I have a number of degrees in philosophy, and so every once in a while I'll get Christians come up to me and say, Aha! The Bible says you're not supposed to be held captive by philosophy. What you need is just good common sense. But of course the irony here is is that Paul is not talking about going to a university to study philosophy. Philosophers think and analyze subjects that everyone else just assumes as a matter of course. Philosophers are the ones who are trying to think carefully about subjects and ideas and assumptions that the rest of the world just hasn't even considered, but is blindly going ahead and following anyway. And in fact, what Paul is talking about is the opposite. He's talking about common sense. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, and according to the basic or elemental principles of this world, and not according to Christ. Paul's not talking about occult, magical mysteries here, and he's not talking about academic philosophy. He's talking about human traditions and basic spirits of the world, which he describes in power and principality language. The the human traditions or the human assumptions that we're born into, that we just assume as a matter of course, without analyzing them or assessing them or choosing them, those have kept us in captivity. It's not being thoughtful that's the problem. It's the exact opposite. It's forms of life, common sense, literally the sense we all share in common, that we've been born into and that we follow without ever wondering what it's there for and whether it's any good. And as we keep reading, we will see that I am correct that Paul here is talking about common sense and basic traditions and basic human-inherited assumptions and not talking about arcane philosophical or occult mysteries here. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. There's that language again. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Wherever you see circumcision language in the New Testament, it's not just the cutting of the foreskin of the penis in order for you to get to heaven when you die. This is an ethnic marker. This is a marker of tribal identity, of ethnic purity, of being set apart. So circumcision is always a symbol of a type of identity figure. And here it is being put back in its place because you have been made by a circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism. Remember, baptism, again, is the dying of the allegiances and the things that lay claim to your identity and being born into a new family of Christ. Baptism is a socio-political act of saying no to the other forms of life which lay claim to your identity and allegiance and saying yes to Christ. So having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith 
in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead, faith, pistus, through allegiance to the one who raised Jesus from the dead, and you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Just notice the unseen forces which influence our lives, which are in operation here. By cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. There's some more powers and principalities here. These he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. It was at the cross that the powers and principalities, the rulers and authorities, the basic principles of this world, were exposed to open shame. John says the light shines in the darkness. It exposes the darkness. Jesus says, when I am lifted up, I will drag, I will draw all men to myself. So the cross was a deeply shameful, but also a deeply political punishment. And the New Testament has to spend a lot of energy turning that punishment into Christ's glory. And they do it by saying it was at the cross that he was glorified. It was at the submission to the rulers of the, of the land and rulers of the age that he triumphed over them. And if you think about the powers and principalities that are ranged against Jesus at the cross, the unseen forces, we have three principal ones. We have the popular crowd, the mob, who sometimes was chasing after Jesus, wanting to make him king. They're the ones who are shouting, here comes King David, he's going to save us. And then they're also the ones who say, crucify him, crucify him. The mob is very fickle. Popular support, popular crowds are one of the temptations that Jesus has to resist. They're one of the things he has to flee from time and time again because they don't understand him and they don't really want what he's giving. What they want is the righteous ethnic nationalist folk hero. And time and time again, he has to dash their hopes, which is why they kill him. And then, of course, the other power ranged against Jesus is the Pharisees and the temple authorities and the elite Jewish lot who are preserving the ethnic privilege of their race, who see purity as part of the toolkit for being a chosen person, and whose main concern was impurity forced on them by a Gentile occupation of their land, and by a mixture of Gentiles, Greeks, Samaritans, and others, with Jews. And so their great concern was preserving and expelling the foreigner from their midst. And then the final power ranged against Jesus was Rome. It wasn't the Jews that killed him, it was Rome, the Gentiles. Roman Empire with its overweening power and its organized violence and its taxation systems and religious co-option and worship of the emperor as a little god. These are the powers that are ranged against Jesus and these are the powers that are ultimately unable to live with him. They have to get rid of him. And how Jesus deals with them is he submits to them. He lets these powers kill him. He lets these organized human habits, collective responses, generational evil. He lets these things kill him. And then he rises from the dead. He doesn't beat the mob by being an even bigger, more popular crowd pleaser. He doesn't beat the Jewish authorities 
by being an even better, morally pure, ethnically righteous freedom fighter. And he doesn't defeat Rome by being an even bigger bully with a better organized army and more resources to his disposal. He beats these powers by submitting to them, letting them kill him, and then rising from the dead, which is why the resurrection of Jesus is so important to the early Christians. They don't see it as a magic trick with a body that just raised. By the way, there's lots of resurrections in the Old and New Testament, but we don't have a religion around Jairus's daughter. We don't have a faith following the boy that fell from the window when Paul was preaching and then was raised from the dead. We don't worship the widow's son. It's Jesus who gets the following because it's not just the miracle of the resurrection that's the big deal. It's the life that he led which got resurrected. That's the big deal. The life that Jesus led was a life that the other powers and principalities of this age could not live with. And it was that life that got killed by them And then it was that life on the cross which exposed those principalities to open shame. He triumphs over them, partly by showing them to be the sham that they are. The mob is unable to recognize its king when it sees it. The inheritors of the ethnic purity and privilege of the chosen people, they are unable to recognize the new creation and work of the Holy Spirit and the kingdom of God on the move when they see it. And Rome, whose rhetoric is peace, the peace of Rome. Rome is unable to provide peace or justice. And these stories in the Gospels demonstrate that these three major powers have one job and they fail at their one job. They are exposed to open shame. And then, of course, the resurrection is a defeat of the worst that these powers could throw at Jesus. It's a a rubber stamp of affirmation of the life that Jesus lived, showing that the life he lived, the way he followed, is the real way, the actual way of creation. He's putting the powers back in their place. Therefore, verse 16, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. You see, verse 16, the struggle here is against human traditions, everyday practices of religion and feasting and festivals. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. Don't get all caught up in spiritual warfare mumbo-jumbo because it separates you from the head, from the whole body, which is nourishing and knitting together through its joints and ligaments and grows with you in a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, to the basic principles, to the powers and principalities of this world, why, as if you were still alive in this world, do you submit to its regulations, common sense, Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. According to human precepts and teachings, these indeed have the appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are in no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, 
where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And there you go on and on and on. But powers and principalities is intimately connected to human traditions, human politics, human religion, human habits. And then angelic and demonic language is also in the mix. So when we have a political imagination, which is informed by the language of powers and principalities, we have an imagination which is recognizing that these social and political factors which we've inherited and which we as humans helped to create and which we contribute to daily with our acquiescence and our decisions, these things also have a spiritual aspect or an unseen element to them, and those things can develop a life of their own. And our job, our task, is to witness to those powers, to put them back in their box, to expose them to open shame, to reveal their names and their faces and their purposes. And this is the kind of thing that you see happening all the time in the New Testament, if you have eyes to see. And you'll see that the ecclesia, the group set aside for a common purpose, one of its main functions is precisely this, to witness to the powers. In one place, Paul enjoins his fellow believers to discern the spirits. And this doesn't mean name the demon and the hierarchy of angels that are flying around the room. That's to be puffed up with ridiculous knowledge. What it does mean is discern the spirit in operation amongst you. When you gather together, are you being governed by a spirit of graciousness or hope? Or are you being governed by a spirit of fear or pride or antagonism? And it's not that hard to imagine or to see our common joint life together, the groups that we make. By the way, humans are principality-creating beings. We can't help it. It's what we do. Principalities are non-optional. Whenever two humans get together to agree about something, they've created a principality. They've created an unseen force, which is now going to have an influence on their lives. So the narrative here is not that all principalities are evil. The narrative here is that principalities can grow evil. And when they grow evil, it's because they've grown too big. They've forgotten that they had a purpose and they've forgotten that they had a creator. Which is where we get our narrative of the Satan or the accuser, who of course is meant to have been Lucifer, the bright shining star, uh, one of the greatest of God's angels, who then grew proud, reached to be Lord of the hosts, Lord of the heavens, and was cast down. And notice how Satan is always being cast down. <laughs> he's being cast down in the Gospels, he's being cast down in the book of Revelation, he's being cast down in the book of Daniel and Ezekiel. The Satan is always falling. The proud are always being brought down and the humble are always being lifted up. And the work of the witness to the powers is to witness to these unseen forces who are taking more than they're owed. I'm going to stop here because this is about to become another episode on Romans 13. So in the following session, we're going to discuss submission to the ruling authorities and the deep Christian imagination of benign indifference. Welcome back. I am joined, as always, with my good friends, Sean McCoy and Chris Marchand, two American friends who are helping me talk through the renewal of the Christian social and political imagination. And one thing I would say is we are becoming friends. Am I allowed to say that, do you think, guys? 
Please. <laughs> yes. I okay. So. <laughs> I just realized I said friends and maybe I'm uh, presuming too much because we began as friendly acquaintances. I like you. I think we're friends. Do you know what we got to do, guys? We got to get an enemy on here to really test this brotherly love business. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Just Sean being from Texas and Chris being from Illinois does not quite make you on the enemy camps. You know, I know you have different cultures and just me being a Canadian living in Britain. We're not we're not quite on the enemy friend spectrum. I think we need to we need to branch out a bit, don't we? Who would it be? What type of person? What are you Who is, is there a natural enemy of an Illinoisan? Oh my goodness. I don't know. It depends on who you talk to. Like there's there like my state is so bifurcated between supposedly between Chicago and everybody else. <laughs> right. Does does everybody love to hate Chicago? Kind yeah, if you yeah. if you're if you kind of come from the more libertarian or conservative spectrum, then then you do, yeah. Okay. You, you feel like that they're running the state. Well, also, it is one of the world's most famous cities, so it must it have is. a disproportional kind of, a bit like London. People inside London never think of the rest of the country, and people outside of London hate London in England. Mm. So, you know, that's, and, and London never thinks about anybody else, you know, and I imagine, I don't know, Sean, where are you in, do you have a big city that you're a part of connected to, or are you connected to small town Texas? Where do you, what's your affiliations there? So I grew up right outside of Houston. Oh, boy. Oh, there we go. Okay. Your question makes me think of an old thing I used to say in the Navy, because where you're from is always a big deal. I used to say that there are two kinds of people in this world. There are Texans and there are those that want to be. When I would say that, like, just like Chris is doing right now, like people, and I, <laughs> and that was my favorite thing to say. <laughs> you knew it was going to wind them up. Yeah. Because it kind of, in your terms about rival, like we would joke that there, you know, there is no rival. It's just lonely at the top. Like right, we're just, okay. just kind of this, you know, we know everybody else is not as good as us. So we just kind of smile and pat you on the head and say, you know, good. We're, and we, like I said before, we, we even, even within the United States, like we didn't even consider ourselves part of the United States first. We're, we're here. Yeah, you're Texan first. Yeah. 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 Well, it's, it's funny that you mentioned that because there's, there's a couple of things I remember growing up. And, and I, one of the things is learning about Texas as this place that supposedly people had this huge pride in. I'll actually, I'll give you an example of, a, of the inverse of that. I remember hearing my first, what is called, uh, forgive the phrase, but a Pollock joke. I remember hearing somebody saying, you know, this this is a joke about Polish people. And I was like nine years old or whatever. And I'm like, is there something that I should know about Polish people? I, what What is this even about? Because like, and I, I, it's still a bit of a mystery to me. I'm only commenting on that to say that it's just crazy how these things happen. Like how these, we get these perceptions of different people groups and we separate ourselves out, whether it's who we make the lowest or who is assuming i'm sorry mr texas yeah who are we assuming is at the top right <laughs> you don't have to assume it's okay <laughs> oh see Stephen, you've done it you've created the tension already oh, i've just identified the powers and principalities in operation right now in the room that's all i've done <laughs> it's like putting a car into gear you can go and i can go into texan mode yeah right because there's all these unwritten rules and laws and you just kind of slide into the you know you start going down the furrow that's been laid out for you and absolutely that is what by the way, not to put too fine a point on it, that's what Paul was talking about, the Apostle Paul, when he talks about don't be captured by the basic principles of this world. He's talking about this, exactly this kind of stuff, actually. Because <laughs> your mind gets captured by, oh, I'm from Illinois, so I probably hate Texan. Like, Why should you hate Texas? And to add to that a little bit, on a personal level, uh, so my last name is McCoy, as you know, in, in the United States. Ah, the McCoys. And the Hatfields. Right. It's uh, something I grew up hearing about all the time now. 
having somebody, you know, nerds out in my, through my research and understanding is it's actually more in the Ohio River Valley area. That's where it all kind of happened. And or I think it may have been Pennsylvania. So anybody's a better historian than me might make it upset. But the real, the real idea around it, it was just a family rivalry that led to actual death and people dying. And I just remember the part that I've, that I've drawn the most from in terms of that story, which I just think parallels this a little bit, is Devil Ants Hatfield was the patriarch of, the, of that side. And at kind of at the end of the, of the uh, rivalry, at the end of the, um, the, the feud, mm-hmm. the lament was basically that it wasn't worth all the death and destruction. Right. There really wasn't a winner. Yeah. And I've learned in my life over, you know, that kind of we're joking, but I think the serious side of this is whether it's something like my last name and whether or not I should hate somebody. Because I grew up with a guy named Mark Hatfield. <laughs> I remember joking with him. He's like, oh, you don't seem to like me. And I was like, oh, we're not supposed to like you kind of thing. And what we did, we, we, it wasn't a problem or anything. It was more joking. But but on the serious side, when, when you kind of see, that when you do believe when you're drinking that Kool-Aid, you know, the fallacy is is the faux, the curtain is, is drawn back, right? And then you see the value. The reason why you shouldn't be that way, but also the value of that introspection, the value of yeah. that inclusion. Yeah. Saying I, I don't, I, I want Chris to be part of it. I want you to be my friend. I don't care where you grew up and where you live now. That if you don't do that, what you miss out on, it's such a. Then it becomes a whole other thing. I think. Yeah, I mean, I might have to do a an episode on specifically on Kierkegaard actually one day because he he does talk a little bit about the kind of lie, one of the lies of patriotic love. He talks about because it, patriotic love talks the talk of unity and we're all in this together and it's like a a thing that lots of different groups can all sign up to the same story and it unifies us right but the reality is actually what you see is lots and lots of little groups arguing over who is a more authentic patriot or not and in fact it's a divisive movement at all and he says ultimately it's just a love of the self because you're really just trying to group together with people who who make you feel happy about yourself (laughs) and so it, it pretends to be about the great big common good and it's actually about your own self and it's uh, like yeah that's really interesting the kind of um channel that you're run through or the the kind of trajectory that you're going towards when you try and identify with like a family name or a city or something it 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 doesn't really lead to where it claims it's going to lead i don't think anyway (laughs) and the thing is i like texas i like illinois i want to go you know i've been to both we've had great times in both places and i don't so I resent any kind of world story that tells me if you're from X, you must hate Y. I, I resent that. It just makes my world smaller, not bigger, right? That's patriotism making my world smaller, not bigger. Yeah, no, and, and that's the irony. When, and when you, do, when you do get to expose yourself to other people, when you do get to uh, interact with them, I mean, you find, you find some of those nuances of why there may be some things, you know, where the pride comes from people from Texas or where people maybe from up north in the New England area are kind of more you know, more reserved or, you know, people in London may, you know, just the way that people are in the, in the UK or, you know, just those, those nuances. There's some of that and there's an undercurrent of that there, but I think it's being going beyond that, not letting that be the, not let that be the period, but the comma. That's kind of how I look at it for sure. Yeah, that's true. Right. Yeah. It's not the end of the story. Chris, we were, uh, I was talking with you just a little bit earlier before we pressed record and you started talking about demons in relation to the sort of demonic in relation to institutions and stuff and i wonder whether we could start to launch straight into it let's go straight for the big stuff yeah is chicago a demonic entity oh my goodness see i don't even know how to touch that Um, is the anglican church can it be demonic if we've identified an institution which is a principality does that mean we have now identified 
the realm of the demons. What do you think? Well, well, so <laughs> I guess I'm just going to throw a question right back at you, which is I, I was very intrigued by your, your talk. And, and I have to say uh, this episode and the one coming about benign indifference, those have been two of my favorites uh, so far. Yeah, Romans 13 is coming up next week. And by the way, you know, like uh, if, for those people that might be concerned that you're not dealing with enough scripture, well, <laughs> hey, look at you. Oh, it's all Bible now. It's all Bible now. Did I tell you, I did get a, a complaint email saying you didn't mention and he, let, he rattled off all the Bible I never mentioned. I'm like, dude, I spoke for half an hour. <laughs> you just wait. So to your question, like, you know, I grew up in a church culture that was very, in a sense, uh, I would actually call it, you know, spirituality, spirit centric. And we did talk a lot about uh, demons and the spiritual realms. So I appreciate you pointing us to how powers and principalities are a lot of things or can be a lot of things. I think as modern people, we tend to, uh, especially, you know, us more scientific minded, we tend to want to downplay bigger spiritual realities and go, ah, you know, those aren't important. I, I Correct me if I'm wrong. I, I, I hear you holding a lot of those things in tension with what you were talking about. Yeah. So people will know I'm drawing a lot from this uh, guy named Walter Wink. And then he himself was drawing from a guy named Heinrich Burkhoff. Burkhoff was a, a Dutch, I think. Forgive me if I've got my nationalities wrong. Forgive me if I've stepped on your patriotism, uh, Dutch people. But Heinrich Burkhoff wrote a book called uh, Christ and the Powers. And then Walter Wink has taken that and moved with it. And Walter Wink was a New Testament theologian who was also an, an activist. He marched with uh, Martin Luther King at the civil rights marches and things. He's a white guy, a white theologian, but was really committed to this kind of stuff. And he, his books, like the one I'm looking at here on my shelf, uh, Naming the Powers, where a lot of this powers and principality language comes through to us through people like Walter Wink, because he put the time in. But he was, he was that fine line, because so to the kind of the stereotypical social justice lefties, it was all, it was all institutional. That was the problem, was all our politics and our institutions. And then to the kind of gospel fundamentalist individualist, it was all, no, we don't need institutional change. We just need individual you know, renewal and, and it's all spiritualized warfare. And Wink is trying to move that line in the middle. And he's saying, actually, it's a bit like a coin has two sides. It's one coin and it has two sides to it. And every institution has a spiritual dimension and every spirit has an institutional dimension. There's spirit, the spirit world is always connected to the physical world in some way. And he even points out like the demons beg Jesus to throw them into a herd of pigs. There's something about the spiritual and he doesn't like trying to explain it. He just says the New Testament gives us an image of the spiritual world and the physical world being in connection to each other and that the institutions we create have a spiritual, it's almost like we can generate the spirit within uh, ourselves and then that spirit can can have a controlling emphasis right so the total liberal lefties don't like him because he's too spiritual and the total righties don't like him because he's too political anyway <laughs> but yeah that's the tension trying to see our institutions as spiritual things and that you know for example when the apostle paul in ephesians 5 gets everyone to submit one to another and then in ephesians 6 he goes into talking about spiritual warfare so in ephesians 5 how we organize our power and how we treat each other is, in Paul's imagination, the beginning to talking about spiritual warfare. Politics and, do you see? Politics and spiritualism are similar. Yeah. So, Sean, what are you going to say? 
I was going to ask about um, what the two of you, how you envision spiritual warfare. I remember when I got baptized, mm. a friend of mine said that she, she could see, you know, angels and, you know, the angels rejoicing. And then there was also a comment made that now that I had kind of drawn my proverbial line in the sand and made my Alamo reference, you know, for, for all of you out there that love Texas, if you don't, you should learn and listen, but I've been to the Alamo. <laughs> attaboy, attaboy. You can check it off your list. Yes. And so, so all that, all joking aside, but, but she said that now you've kind of told the other side, you've kind of told the, the demonic world, the other, you know, the, the non, the, the bad guys, if you will, yeah, um, where you stand and now expect. Now expect opposition. Opposition and warfare yeah. and stuff like that. So when I hear, especially now, I kind of got that at first. It was a little bit odd, but now more than ever, I, I'm having a little bit of a struggle around this idea that there's all these demonic forces and these good forces that we can't see and they're all fighting each other. And we're kind of some pseudo reference to that here. And what should we be doing around that? And is somebody actually being demon possessed? Mm. And is it, as I told you all a story recently, but from it's an interaction with some friends of mine, you know, in, so in alluding to something that goes on in the real world as some indication of that, right? That, oh, well, that's happening over there. That's demonic and the devil's over there. And this is where Satan is. And starting kind of putting a location on it. So maybe in context, Ephesians 6 and stuff like that, maybe, because I, I guess for me, I'm having a hard time. Is it the physical realm, which is the only one I can do anything about? Well, think about this. I mean, okay. If you're cynical, if you're a listener out there who's cynical about demonic manifestation, you know, if you don't believe in demonic manifestations, you just on the 4th of July, go into an evangelical American church and just say, no, nah, America's not that great. You just watch and see what's going to happen. Or if, you know, if you're, an, if you're a pastor of an American church and you decide to take the flag down from the front on the 4th of July and you take it down, you will see demonic manifestations. You'll see fury. You'll see rage, right? You'll see anger. You see it all the time. But we're not trained to see it as spiritual. We're trained to see it as something else. And yet, if you were in some hyper Pentecostal environment and you started talking about demons and casting them out, you would see people with rage, fury, anger, lashing out. And then the preacher would say, ah, we see a demon happening over there, right? I've seen some very similar reactions, <laughs> but sometimes people identify it as spiritual and other times they don't. But I, it's the same rage and it's the same offense against the spiritual principality. So, so walk me through this. So yet when this friend of mine said something to me, it, it got me enraged. So then my, that's where I, it wasn't until like the next, I got like yesterday was not a good day for me. And my poor wife was kind of on the, you know, the receiving end of my uh, fervor, if you will, not at her, but just at the subject. So then playing that out what I hear you saying though, it, so was I, was I losing a battle within myself, because that's where I ultimately came down on is it was up to me to react, not to her. But in that meantime, in that transition, if you will, that, or that experience, was I, was I being possessed demonically at that point? Well, it, the kind of rage, I'm not saying all rage all the time, is it's like when you feel that your boundaries have been transgressed. And, you know, if something you hold to be sacred or important is now you, you, you think it's been blasphemed or encroached upon, you will then react with a kind of a righteous fury or something. And so that's what we look at. We go, oh, isn't that interesting? The, the righteous fury happens in lots of environments. Just not all Christians are aware, would use it, would recognize it as a spiritual thing. But people like a Walter Wink and stuff, they'd say, oh no, like a really strong patriarchal father who really believes that like his way is the law and it's everybody else's job in the family to obey him he will respond with rage if he's defied, right? And what you can do is you can go, all oh, right, that's 
the principality of that family, the unwritten rules, the unnamed assumptions, the habits of life that have been formed in that collection of human beings, somebody has broken the rules and now they're being met with kind of a fury that is reserved for, for defiling a sacred space, right? And that's the kind of thing we look at. Right? Oh, right, yeah, because that family, that dynamic had been set up. It's been made by human beings, but now it's got a life of its own. It's now being treated as holy. It's being treated as an unnamed, unformed thing in which we live and move and have our being. And if you break the rules of the family, you are now outside of the order of creation or something, right? And we go, and then this this kind of man that I've just described will probably go to that kind of theological language. He probably will say, "You've broken the laws of the universe here. You're, you know, stepping on God's will and stuff." And it's like we invoke the spiritual realm all the time, and then we don't think of that as a spiritual activity. But uh, oh, Walter Wink and others are saying is, well, no, that's. It's not that hard. The New Testament had language to describe what happens when human institutions are thwarted. And it just happened to use power and principality language to describe that. And that was the thing that Jesus was exposing often. That very kind of petulant, angry, throw your... Do you, know, do you guys have that phrase, throw your toys out of the pram? <laughs> <laughs> that kind of like, ah, oh, if, if, if you can't go my way, then we're all going to die. That kind of... The cross basically exposes that kind of empty sham really that the, the principalities claim to be taking care of you and there for your good but the reality is they kill you the moment that you cross them chris when you grew up in your culture what was your what was your encounter with spiritual warfare you know there was a lot of spiritual warfare praying i i very much uh heard the the kind of language where let's say you you start to walk let's say you accept a call to ministry, I'm going to become a missionary or whatever it happens to be, then, then you should expect to be tempted or you should expect um, some kinds of attacks. And so there was, a, there was a lot of people always on the lookout for, for those kinds of attacks. Um, there was also, um, there was a, a book, I think it was called by Neil Anderson called Bondage Breaker. Oh yeah. 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 You, yeah. And you know, I, you know, I'm, I'm trying to think about where I would stand on that now. I, I guess I do believe still in the power of praying for God's freedom, for God's deliverance over sin, over death. And so sometimes that there are powers over us that hover over us from the generations. So that was, I think bondage breaker was a big, was a big uh, uh, emphasis on that, like generational sins. That was also right. a big emphasis. So, but do you see how that is power? And pr that is principality language. That is precisely yeah. it. Like, so when I read like a bondage breaker and I've seen that and I've been in churches in which, you know, you, you participate in a process of breaking off chains that you've been born into or you forgive people in your past or you, you go through, you know, praying over things that your grandfather, or your grandmother did or whatever. I actually affirm that stuff. Like as a, as a New Testament scholar on powers and principalities, I look at bondage breaker and I say, well, yeah, that's what's going on. You are recognizing that we are born into systems and habits of life that we didn't invent and yet which have a control over us. And now what we're going to do is shine a light on them and name them and, you know, yeah, and and reject them and say, look, you know, a, a classic one be Freemasonry or something. He's like, and you, you kind of go through a process and you say, no, I these oaths were made by my grandfather without my permission and I refuse it. I'm going to look it in the face and I'm going to, you know, and I yeah. that kind of stuff or, you know, the idea that, you know, a bad relationship with your dad or your mom 
probably means that your mom or your dad had a bad relationship with their parents and then those parents with their parents. And so there's a line of bad relationships. And so what you do is then you say, no, it's going to stop with me. You know, I refuse to carry on that pattern. I, my mind is going to be renewed. I'm not going to just follow the common sense of my family. I'm not just going to follow that pattern. I'm going to look it full in the eye and I'm going to say, no, I don't own that. Right. Yeah. Which is, which is power and principality. You're putting a principality back in its box. That's all you're doing. You know? I think in terms of the New Testament, what I see time and time again, and I'm I'm a I'm a big fan of the um, New Testament scholar Gordon Fee. Oh yeah, who uh, really emphasizes the Spirit, and so the Holy Spirit in, in the sense yeah. of we are now the way we overcome is through Christ, but being filled with the Spirit, being filled with the Holy Spirit, and so I, maybe I'm maybe I, I'm curious on I, I was thinking about Jesus overturning the tables in the temple, acting in anger. He was, so, so that wasn't a, that wasn't a demonic manifestation. That was a Holy spirit manifestation. And so, you know, there, there are times when God's people rise, have to rise up against the powers and maybe to other people. What if I were to stand up in the evangelical church and go, America is not great. They would perceive me as being demonic. Well, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, they would. They would. But, but, you know, when Jesus is clearing the temple, that's, I guess what I'm trying to say is that's not like sometimes Jesus was doing spiritual warfare and sometimes he was doing practical stuff. It's like, no, no, it was one thing. Like the spiritual Mm -hmm. warfare, the spirit of the temple was set up Jewish privilege in the court of the Gentiles to stop Gentiles from coming in. Jesus wages against that principality of ethnic privilege and pride. And he says, this house will be a house of prayer for all people. And he kicks the people out. And he turns over the tables. So his physical action was his spiritual warfare against the spirit that was dominating that institution. You know, maybe that's maybe that's an excellent, excellent example is like I think most Christians would go, oh, it is both spiritual and this, you know, physical principality. I mean, that's a that's a a, it really hits home. (laughs) So I'm definitely not saying, oh, there's no such thing as spiritual warfare. It's all politics. I'm not saying that at all. In fact, it's almost the other way around. I would say it's all spiritual. Just pay attention. Even the politics you don't think is, is actually deeply spiritual. And and almost certainly the, the stuff that you don't think is spiritual is almost certainly the strongest spiritual grip on your life. <laughs> the stuff you haven't analyzed and you don't know about, almost certainly that's what really has a grip on your spiritual life when it comes to allegiance and money and violence and all that stuff that we just don't even think about. Racism is another really big one. You know, that idea of like who you just naturally have been assume is the a right target for you to marry or be with or spend resources on. Th- those are the those are the kind of things that the early church was directly against or fighting. You know, the assumed inheritance that, of course, Jews should be with Jews and Gentiles with Gentiles. And Paul talks about that as a power and principality, which was the uh, that was the witness. I said that earlier. Getting Jews and Gentiles together was the mystery of God that the church is a witness to. And he uses power and principality language explicitly when talking about Jews and Gentiles in church. Your Honor, I rest my case. (laughs) But I think it plays into this. It plays into the podcast. It plays into your message around. It's made me kind of take a step back and say, you know, oh, I don't want to do politics or politics are over there. Right. Or politics are something to do with bureaucracy and governments and organizations that are running states and stuff like that. But it's really, you made the point and it challenged me to go, but everything we do is political and really understanding that it's more than when there's politics within your family, there's politics within the relationships you have at the company you work for. I just, 
but you can politic going to the DMV or the Department of Motor Vehicles here in terms of how you interact with people, although they're not very receptive. But just you know, just that whole and opening that your mindset to that. And like you said, what I really what really resonates with me about what you're saying is it's going beyond. It reminds me of putting things in. Going back to your the, the box mentality, or you're giving this value to something where you're saying, okay, well the, these are the things that make almost like our self righteous thing. Where here's my checklist of things that, that Jesus did that give me some sort of moral high ground. Right. Uh, here's of how to react on the physical world. And then at the end, I'm going to talk about him raising from the dead. And we're kind of like, well, yeah, but that's that spiritual thing or this is other thing over here. But let's talk more about this set of rules and morality that gives us authority and power over here. Yeah. But like I said, you're leaving the fact that it's all one instead of saying that it has to be one or the other, which I think is kind of becomes that, you know, second, third level or just a more intimate. I always say more intimate. I don't want to give it hierarchy, but a more intimate understanding of ourselves, of the divine, of Christ, of each other and that kind of thing, which I think is so much has so much more power and, and true power in terms of its uh, inclusiveness and understanding. And and when you realize political is just all about how we use our power that we have. And so uh, a lot of the forms of life or habits or systems that we have, they're all basically just telling you what to do with your power. So if you're born into a strict patriarchal family, it tells you power belongs to the man. And this is what you do. If you think you have any power, you give it to this person. And so, you know, that's political, like you're saying, Sean. So I don't think, and since I don't think there's any such thing as any human who has no power at all, I think some people have less power than others, obviously, but I don't think there's any human being that has zero power. So there's no human being that doesn't have some responsibility for some, for another person or for themselves even. Like as Spider-Man would say, as Uncle Ben would say, with great power comes great responsibility. And with a little bit of power comes a little bit of responsibility. And once you talk about responsibility, you're talking about principalities, structures that help us hold our power and know what to do with them. And then the early Christians are always trying to renew that or just pay attention to it. I need to get a guy in. I'm going to get a guy named Johnston, Justin Berenger. Justin Bronson Berenger. There's a mouthful. He's a Christian anarchist, amongst other things. And I really want to chat with him. I'm going to talk to him because it's about giving power away. And I, and I want to talk to him, especially in this current age, right? Uh, defund the police and all that. Like, where does Christian anarchy fit in, in all that? I'd love to chat with him. So we've booked that one. That's going to happen. Watch this space, we say. <laughs> if there are those that are, you know, can maybe come from more conservative backgrounds, uh, their brains have just exploded because you've, you've put together two words. You have to be very quick to say it's Christian anarchy and not anarchy. Very quick, because there's a big difference, actually. And it, it essentially has to do, this is where I want to talk to Justin about it, because it essentially has to do not with like throwing a bank, a brick through a bank window or killing a policeman. It's not chaos. It means, can you hold, can we build structures that we hold lightly? Are we willing to dismantle our structures if we realize that they're no longer serving the purpose we made them for? So it's very much a kind of a New Testament way of thinking of like, have these powers grown too big? And if so, can we put them back in their box? And then that the, the anarchy comes in because it's you're not building institutions that are going to last forever and ever. They're intentionally unstable because they're going to be dismantled one day. And I find that an interesting way to think. And like churches, this is what I find funny. I mean, I, I go to charismatic churches all the time and they believe that the Holy Spirit blows where he will. And they're very keen to say things like the Holy Spirit told us that we should start meeting in small groups instead. So we're going to have a small group. You know, that is Christian anarchy. <laughs> hmm. That's all that hmm. is. That is just saying, 
you know, and I and I approve of it. You know, that is the a church saying, you know what, we were been meeting, we've been made an idol out of meeting together a thousand people in one room. We've made an idol of it. We're going to dismantle that, and we're going to meet in smaller groups instead. That is Christian anarchy. That's what I mean by that. It means we're not building a thing, which we're now going to sacrifice all of our time and energy and effort to to keep going if it no longer serves its purpose. <laughs> Sorry to blow everyone's anarchy minds, though. <laughs> and, if, and if we want a secular anarchist, Michael Malice might be somebody good to talk to. Yeah, it'd be interesting to compare the two. I know that Christian anarchy anarchists are always, I mean, that word is such a big, you know, anarchy is such a word, right? So I know that Christian anarchists are always a little bit, they don't like the fact that the anarchists get all the press, but hey, <laughs> they're not in it for the power, so they can't complain when they don't have any power. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, my friends, um, to next week, we are going to look at Romans 13. We're going to look at this thing called benign indifference, which in fact, probably will keep talking a little bit about Christian anarchy there as well. And if you don't hate your countries and your nations and your families and your institutions, then what kind of attitude are you? If you don't love them, but you don't hate them, what else might that look like? That's what we're going to talk about. And especially Romans 13, which just gets trotted out absolutely all the time. It's been trotted out just recently when people are defying the government. The same sort of churches that will tell you about Romans 13, why you should be absolutely lockstep in with the Trump administration. There's now the very same churches that are using Romans 13 to justify meeting together in large groups, defying the government's orders for Corona restrictions. So what a pickle we get ourselves in with Romans 13. I guarantee I will answer all of your questions about Romans 13 or your money back in this free podcast. All right, friends. Sean, any last parting shots from the six-gun Texan? No, I want to start back where we started from. And not only am I proud to call both of you friends, but you know, there's a wonderful thing about podcasting that we hope somewhere in the future as these things, as we go into whatever the future may bring, that we do get a chance to talk to our listeners and people out there that support us and that, you know, the invitation isn't, uh, we understand there's, you know, three, us three talking, but we would love to continue this kind of conversation with any of you out there that are listening to the pod. Yeah, do send emails. It's not hard to find our email addresses, but mine info at tenttheology.com is probably the best way if you want to send some questions or comments. And we're working on ways to deal with questions coming in. We, we want to find a good way to hold and host these things. We're trying to build a structure that will outlast us and it will last forever and ever and ever. <laughs> Chris, final words? My final word is that Illinois, we have Lincoln. So deal with that. Deal with that, suckers. We got Lincoln. <laughs> He's our patron saint. He's the head. He is the head of the state, always. Always hovering over us saying, please do well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Shall we end with with Lincoln looming over us. How about that as an image? For that's, our... that's the funny thing is, is me me growing up realizing that, okay, well, what, what do I do with that? Yeah, you know, to, to kind of relinquish my pride of Lincoln. I was in Illinois and I have to do that a little bit. Yeah, idol. Well, I will conduct a, a deliverance spiritual warfare session for you after this podcast ends, Chris. Don't worry, you stay there. Thank you. We'll I deliver will. you from your binds and bonds to, to Abraham Lincoln. Hey guys, it's really nice. Thank you for your time. Love talking to you as always, and I will see you next week. To further support the show, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social media and learn more about 10th Theology at www.10thTheology.com. Thank you for joining us and God bless everyone.